guys, welcome to a new episode of Security Horizons. This is the weekly podcast designed to keep you up to date with security and politics around the world that you might not see on the front pages. Whether it's developments in Africa, the latest cybersecurity news from America, or more political wrangling in Europe, I'll cover it here. Here's today's rundown. The presumed abduction of Princess Latifah in Dubai, with a full timeline of events and a quick breakdown of women's rights in Dubai and the wider United Arab Emirates. The expansion of the Taliban in Afghanistan amid US troop withdrawals and the increased doubts over whether this is now possible. Israel have allegedly launched airstrikes against Iranian militia targets in Syria. And finally, the Texas winter storm that is taking energy suppliers by surprise, leading to the loss of power among the entirety of the state. What this freak storm might reveal to us should there be cyber attacks against key infrastructure in the United States or the wider world. Now, let's get on with the podcast. Now, although this is a topic that most people would have seen by now, several people have come to me asking for an explanation on just what is going on in Dubai with Princess Latifah. This is the story going back nearly 21 years, so it's not a short one. However, background is key when explaining the situation amongst the wider topic of women in the United Arab Emirates and Dubai. The story of Latifah goes back to July 2000. At this time, her older sister Shamza escaped while on holiday with members of the royal family at their Surrey estate in the United Kingdom. Sheikh Mohammed launched a search for her following this. However, he did not inform the police he was searching for his daughter. She was eventually tracked down one month later in Cambridge, where she claims in an email to her solicitor that she was grabbed by four Arab men while being driven to her father's house in Newmarket. Following this, she was injected and given tablets, and upon waking up the following morning, she was already on her way back to Dubai in a private jet. Two years later, in June of 2002, Latifah attempted her first escape while she was only 16 years old. She would get to the border of the UAE and Oman, however, it was here that she was caught. Following her capture, she was jailed for three years and four months, where she claimed that she was kept in solitary confinement and tortured throughout the period. Eight years later, Latif would meet Tina Johainen, who was a personal trainer who would teach her Brazilian martial arts. During this period, Latifa would see her movements restricted as she was refused access to her passport, not allowed to drive, or given the ability to leave the country. A year later, in 2011, Latifa would meet a businessman from France, Hervé Joubert, who had escaped Dubai years earlier, despite being convicted of embezzlement in this country, having been convicted in absentia. This meeting would start a years-long planning operation for Latifa to escape the country. Tina would act as a go-between between Joubert and Latifa herself throughout this period. A further seven years would go by. In early February 2018, Latifa would record a video to document the restrictions that she lived under in the UAE. This video also included details of her first escape, her plan to leave the country, and her ultimate aim to claim political asylum. This was done as a, and I quote, just-in-case plan, should she be captured in her escape attempt. On the 24th of February 2018, Johainen and Latifa met up in the early morning. They would go on to take a 26-mile trip in an inflatable boat and by jet ski, reaching international waters. Waiting for them was Joubert, waiting in a US-registered yacht. 
The ultimate plan, it turned out, was to get to India via the yacht, then fly on over to the United States, where Latifa aimed to finish her plan by claiming political asylum. Eight days later, on the 4th of March 2018, just off the coast of India, the yacht was raided by Indian Special Forces. Latifa and Tina went to hide in the bathroom of the yacht. However, smoke grenades used by the Special Forces would force them out of the bathroom and onto the upper deck. While being held at gunpoint, Latifa was dragged off the boat by the Special Forces. The crew, along with Tina, were detained in the UAE in a high-security facility for two weeks, after which they were released. Seven days later, on the 11th of March, UAE pressure group called Detained in Dubai released the Just In Case video, prepared by Latifa before her escape. Along with this, Tina was go on a press tour to explain the situation and to get the word out about Latifa's detention. Proceeding plans to release a documentary on this situation by the BBC on the 6th of December, Dubai released a statement on the 5th of December, stating that Latifa and Shamza, her sister, are, and I quote, adored and cherished by the family, with Latifa now, and I quote again, safe in Dubai, and was celebrating her birthday, quote, in privacy and peace. Nine days later, on the 24th of December 2018, three photos were released of Latifa with Princess Haya, one of Sheikh Mohammed's wives, along with Mary Robinson, who is a former UN Human Rights Commissioner. After this visit, Mary Robinson would describe Latifa as being troubled and receiving psychiatric care. Following this statement, there was immediate pushback by the global human rights community. Mary was accused of peddling the Dubai line and being blinded to the real situation. In early 2019, Tina would get a message from a stranger. After answering security questions and checks, she managed to open a backdoor message system with Latifa, who had access to a phone that was unknown to her family at this point. Latifa would then send video messages to Tina, detailing her confinement at the hands of her father. She stated she was being held in solitary confinement, with windows shut and no access to daylight. This came during months of communication between the two and Tina, along with her lawyer, David Heyer, and her maternal cousin. In April 2019, Princess Heyer, the second official wife of Sheikh Mohammed, escaped to the UK from Dubai with her two children. Heyer, who had become the sixth wife of a Sheikh in April of 2004, was the only wife with a public profile. She was often seen with him at public events, such as horse racing in the United Kingdom. She reportedly fled for Sheikh in fear of her life. On the 14th of May 2019, Sheikh Mohammed started legal proceedings in the UK court system to have Haya and the two children return to him. However, to counteract this, Haya applied for her children to become wards of court, as well as a forced marriage protection order and non-molestation order. Nearly a year followed, and on the 5th of March 2019, the court returned judgment within which Sheikh Mohammed was found responsible for the abduction and forced return of both Shamza and Latifa to Dubai. Along with this decision, the judge ruled the Sheikh led a campaign of intimidation and that he had not been open and honest with the court. In late 2020, David Hay, the lawyer we spoke about previously, lost contact with Latifa after he realised the message that he was sending were not getting through. All this has come to a head this month, February of 2021. 
Mary Robinson, the former UN Human Rights Commissioner, came out and expressed to the media that herself and Princess Haya had been tricked by the Sheikh concerning Latifa's situation. She apparently was not aware of the UAE's plans to release photos of herself with Latifa and expressed regret that she was not able to see her by herself and ask her about her condition. The video of Latifa detailing her containment in the UAE was released to the wider world. This led to calls from the global community for a UN investigation. Princess Latifa's story has brought up the question of how women are treated in the UAE, both in a legal sense and within society. A report from the World Economic Forum has placed the UAE as the second best country in the Middle East for gender equality, given that women are now allowed to drive, vote, work and also process and inherit property. However, this report and description of the ability of women to operate within society within the UAE does not give the larger context of what actually happens in the country, and the reality is quite different to what is being stated here. Within the latest anti-discrimination law in 2015, discrimination on the basis of sex and gender is not included within the definition. Within the UAE, men have the right to unilaterally divorce their wives. However, a woman must apply to the court and obtain a court order if she wishes to divorce her husband. Also, a woman can lose her rights and maintenance within the family should she refuse to have sexual relations with her husband without a lawful excuse. Along with this, female victims of rape in the country have been prosecuted under laws against extramarital sex. However, there have been the introduction of several laws and reforms concerning women's rights recently. In 2019, requirements of women to obey their husbands, in which a woman could be considered disobedient if she decides to work without her husband's consent, as one example, was revoked from law. There also came into law the ability of women to gain access to protection orders or restraining orders for the first time. There have also been more in both regards to women and general society. Reforms include the decriminalisation of drinking or possession of alcohol and attempted suicide. Unmarried couples will also now be allowed to cohabitate, which also means that men face longer and harsher jail sentences for assaulting female relatives for so-called honour crimes. Should the reform stay in their current form, it will also give the ability for couples who are married outside of the UAE to follow laws of their home country, or wherever they married from, to settle debates such as divorce and inheritance in that particular country's legal framework. However, the UAE, despite its ranking as the second best in the Middle East and North Africa region for gender equality, remains a patriarchal society, and still possess laws that openly discriminate against women. Judges in the legal system still have subjective opinions that can have massive consequences in domestic violence cases, along with family matters that come before the court. Although this may be naive, considering previous news stories coming out of the region of the oppression against women and minority groups, the attention given to this story of Princess Latifah might hopefully bring, if not change, heightened awareness of the current situation. Our second story today is about the Taliban gaining ground in Afghanistan ahead of a proposed troop withdrawal on the 1st of May. 
for troop withdrawal has been cast into doubt following the Taliban gains, as well as the public claims of the United States that the Taliban have not been keeping up their commitments in relation to the peace deal signed in February of last year. In the northern city of Kunduz, military bases and outposts have been overrun by the Taliban despite a very cold winter. They have also used small drones to terrorise troops in the Afghan army. And in the neighbouring city, highways have been taken over, which represent the main connections to the capital, Kabul. Attacks have also been on the increase in general. In December, the deputy governor of Kabul was killed in a bomb attack. This has forced members of the United States Congress and international rights groups to claim that the pullout of Allied forces in Afghanistan should be delayed past the 1st of May cutoff. In Kandahar province, 200 checkpoints managed by the Afghan army have been abandoned since December. This takeover of checkpoints, outposts and military bases have allowed the Taliban to move in and almost certainly take masses of military equipment and ammunition, along with suspected heavy ordnance. This has put the new Biden administration in the United States into a lose-lose political situation. Under the current peace deal brokered by the Trump administration, all foreign troops, along with the 2,500 remaining American service personnel who support the Afghan army, have to leave by the 1st of May, leaving the country in a volatile situation. Should the United States and allied countries leave the country on the agreed date, analysts and officials fear that the Taliban will overwhelm what remains of the local security forces and take control of major cities and areas. This would signal a military victory for the Taliban and the surrender of the Afghan government. Given the resources already given by allied nations to the defence of Afghanistan against the Taliban and other terror organisations, the defeat predicted of the Afghan national forces would be seen as a waste of a two-decade war as well as a waste of military lives. However, the continuation of the war is also a politically treacherous decision, with many people wondering why the military is still in the country. Every situation that is currently on the table could be construed by media and political enemies as a failure. However, the deal to remove Allied troops from Afghanistan is based on a conditional peace treaty. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg of NATO told reporters that he does not believe the Taliban have met their conditions as agreed upon in the peace treaty. This is obviously reputed by the Taliban, who are backed up by top Russian diplomats. The acting Inspector General of the Defence Department, General Sean O'Donnell, has stated that, and I quote, the Taliban continues to maintain relations with Al-Qaeda. He also cited intelligence that members of Al-Qaeda and its affiliate, Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, have been integrated into the Taliban's command and control structure. This is a clear violation of the terms of the peace treaty. NATO defence ministers apparently have also made no decision on whether or when they are going to pull out of Afghanistan. They have talked about the same dilemma of increased violence whether they stay in the country or leave it. The German defence minister, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, stated that the Taliban must do more to meet the terms of the 2020 agreement with the Americans to facilitate the withdrawal of all Allied troops. Stoltenberg added to that, and I quote, If we stay beyond the 1st of May, we risk more violence, more attacks against our own troops. But if we leave, then we also risk the gains that we have made are lost. Now on to our quick hit topics of the week, starting with alleged Israeli strikes against Iranian military targets in Syria. 
It has been alleged that Israeli air force strikes have killed nine people connected to an Iranian militia in Syria. Seven of those were killed in strikes against an Iranian rocket depot within the headquarters of the 4th Division in the mountains around the old Beirut Road, which connects Damascus and Beirut. Having been asked for a response to this, the Israeli military responded that, and I quote, they will not comment on foreign reports. The Israeli military was also holding a no-notice combat drill along the northern front at the same time. The Israeli Defence Forces denial runs along with its policy to neither confirm or deny any actions that it takes within Syria. The only exception to this rule is when they are retaliating to an attack that was identified as coming from within Syrian borders. However, on occasions they have also omitted to its strikes that target Iranian concentration of troops, weapons and missile manufacturing facilities. On the Iranian side, this runs along the long-standing precedent of Iran using militias and proxies in the Middle East to expand its power within the region. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC, are well known to use mercenary and militia groups to further Iranian foreign policy within the region. Iran has also been a key ally of the Syrian regime and has been supporting the Assad government during the Syrian civil war. I have written an article for Grey Dynamics, which is linked below, talking about the Iranian use of proxies within specifically cybersecurity and the larger policies within the Middle East in regards to this. Give that a look should you want to learn more about how Iran operates with deniability against enemies in both the Middle East region and further abroad. Our last, but by no means least, topic of the day is the historic Texas winter storm that is currently affecting the state. Although this may not seem related to geopolitics or security, which is obviously the main focus of this podcast, the current situation shines a light on the needed security surrounding key infrastructure within any nation state. However, to start, we need to address the ridiculous accusations that Texan officials and Republicans in general have been spewing out about that green energy is responsible for the widespread power outages within Texas. The Texas legislature, representing the largest oil and gas producing state within the United States, is completely opposite in thinking to the federal government when it comes to green energy and climate change. Greg Abbott, the Republican governor of the state, also did not acknowledge the 2020 presidential election win when it was called. There are currently over 1 million or even more people suffering power outages due to the storm. While the federal government has blamed it on climate change, Republican officials have either outright denied this or downplayed the seriousness that climate change is having. Abbott has been claiming that the Democratic Party efforts to shift towards green energy sources instead of fossil fuels are the root cause of the current crisis. He has come under significant fire for these statements. The agency that operates Texas's state's power grid has stated that the failures related to solar and wind power were the, and I quote, least significant factor in the blackouts. It has been said that it is critical to assess how to better protect energy and general infrastructure going forward, providing it with more resiliency against both natural and human attack. It is also worth noting only 20% of electricity in Texas is provided by renewable energy at this point. There have also been fake images circulating on social media purporting to show helicopters spraying chemicals onto wind farm turbines in an apparent rebuke of renewable energy. This is perfectly encapsulated by Luke Legate, 
A prominent Texas oil and gas consultant who shares a viral image that is in actual fact from 2014 in Sweden and indeed not from present day Texas. The tweet is linked below. Videos of people with no heating, electricity and the potential water supply being contaminated showcases the real threats that a potential attack on infrastructure such as water and electricity poses to a modern economy. Although reminiscent of the plot of Die Hard 4, this is very much a real and present danger showcased here by nature, although easily replicated by a human enemy. The problem here is, most companies and governments do not plan this far ahead. Although one might struggle to blame Texas for not preparing for a massive statewide winter snowstorm, it is important that the federal government at least, if not state governments as well, prepare for a human cyber attack against utility companies. All very often seen as a balancing act in budgets, there is a need to prepare against unlikely and unforeseen events. Hopefully, the scenes that we are seeing out of Texas will mean that we will be more prepared in the future should we act now, and that it will be harder to attack the energy, water and other utility companies. Thank you for listening to security horizons with me your host jeremy walker i hope you enjoyed our dive into all the security and geopolitical situations currently occurring in our world if you're keen to hear more and to continue expanding your understanding of the world beyond the front page headlines join me next week we will be going over the week's topics as we always do should you want to bring up a specific topic or have a question for me you want answers here head on over to our Discord that is linked below and we can have a chat off air too as well as getting your suggestions on air. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at jwalkermedia and on twitch.tv forward slash jeremy underscore walker. That's all for this episode, guys. Speak to you next week.